Hey, everybody. Welcome to Talking Hockey Sense. My name is Chris Peters. It's episode 99, the Gretzky episode of the podcast. We are one away from our 100th episode, which uh, predates my time at Flow Hockey, but now uh, very happy to be with you here uh, at Flow. And hey, we got a lot to talk about as we do every single week. But today and this week, we're going to focus a little bit more on college hockey as we kind of reached not really the quarter mark of the season, but you know, it is, it's getting closer to that early stage where we feel like we can make some kind of, you know, calls on teams, if you will. You know, I think October is often very difficult to predict, but we're going to talk about, you know, a lot of the teams that have had really strong starts to the season, players that have had strong starts to the season, um, some of the leading scorers, different things that I've kind of noticed as I've watched college hockey this season. We'll also talk a little bit about the recent international break. There was the Under-17 World Hockey Challenge. Uh, the Under-18 Five Nations there also, also was a U-20 event, which I didn't get a chance to see yet. So, uh, but, but talk a little bit about some of the top performances from those events as well. And then, as always, I'll answer your questions um, on this episode of the podcast, which, again, episode 99. It's hard to believe um, that we are here at this point, but... Uh, some stops and starts along the way, but we're we're getting closer and closer to a very uh, nice round number and triple digits as well. So, uh, so we've got that coming up. But before we get into our college hockey talk, I did also want to mention, as always, you know, subscribe to the podcast, watch us on FlowHockey.tv or via the Flow Sports app or on YouTube. Many different ways to follow this podcast and interact with it, um, and then also. If you haven't yet, make sure to check out Flow Hockey and, and get that subscription for all the live hockey action. I actually just came from a game that you could have watched on Flow Hockey this morning. There's nothing better than day hockey, uh, let me tell you, but uh, I certainly enjoyed that. So I'm going to take my, my, my dramatic sip of water here as we get ready to dive into the college hockey season because it has been a lot of, fl- a lot of fun. And, you know, I think that there have been a lot of surprises as well. So we're going to start with that right after this dramatic pause. All right, we did it, folks. I'm just getting over a cold. And so any uh, any amount of uh, talking is is going to lead to some coughing like <coughs> like right now. All right. So uh, let's start with perhaps the biggest surprise of the college hockey season. And, you know, I think anybody that's been following the career of Mike Hastings previously at Minnesota State, previously at the Omaha Lancers, um, you know, a a decorated career as a college assistant as well, they might not be all that surprised that, excuse me, he turned around things at Wisconsin as quickly as he did. But they're 9-1. and And... At nine and one, this is—it's not just that they're nine and one. You also look at up and down their roster. They've, their one loss came to North Dakota on on the road. They played actually um, a, a lot of road games. They played six straight road games and came out with just one loss there. So they're nine one and zero. They're four zero and zero in the Big Ten. They had wins over first year program Augustana, then. They beat Bemidji State, lost at North Dakota at the Icebreaker Tournament, sweep at, at Michigan Tech, sweep at Minnesota, and then a sweep at home of Michigan just a couple weeks ago. They were idle last weekend, traveling to Michigan State this weekend. And, you know, I, I think, <coughs> excuse me, as we look at this, you know, 
the decision to move on from Tony Granato last year, I think it was always clear that Tony Granato had players. He had players that were were high-end players, um, guys that could get the job done. They just weren't getting the results, and they didn't necessarily execute. So Mike Hastings comes in with a good situation. And Hastings has been very complimentary of Tony Granato, who you know is still very passionate about the program. And I, I don't think there's there's you know there's always hard feelings when you when you lose a job, but I, I don't think it's it's that bitterness that you know he writes off his his alma mater. Um, but you know the players, <coughs> excuse me, the players that um, have had a good season this year. The leading scorer is Matthew D. St. Fall, who Fall, who is who has been there um and now and is in his fourth year at the program. And even though Mike Casings brought in transfers, some of the guys that have been critical to their success are guys that started there. Cruz Lucius being another one. We actually have a question about him in our question and answer a little bit later, but you know, averaging close to a point per game. And so that's been key. Uh, you know, Kyle McClellan has been a real difference maker in net, and he was a transfer, came in last year out of Mercyhurst, and now is having a tremendous season, a 929 save percentage for the Badgers so far, and that's a great place for them to be. <coughs> Apparently, that's going to be one of those days today. I wish I had a cough button like I do when I'm calling broadcast, but anyway, moving on, um, you know, Kyle McClellan is certainly – been a key difference maker for Mike Hastings and his team. And and I think that that's, you know, having goaltending helps an awful lot. Um, but, you know, there there have been the key transfers. And Christian Fitzgerald was a guy that I looked at coming in as, as a transfer for, for, for Wisconsin from Minnesota State. I thought he was one of the best freshmen in the CCHA last year. Really came on at the at the most critical time of the season. You know, they bring in David Sillier as well. And he he comes in as, with, with goal-scoring pedigree. Um, you know, so they made some critical moves to bring in players that, that have been solid, but again, you have to give some credit to the previous regime for what they've done. And then Mike Hastings has now brought it together and has gotten a team that's nine and one in college hockey. And there's a lot more where that's coming from too. I think this is going to be a team that's going to have a great season and I'm really excited to see how they do against Michigan state. All right, moving on to the next topic at hand. We knew that the balance of power in college hockey could have a lot to do with the city of Boston, and particularly with Boston College and Boston University having young teams, very skilled teams, teams that we're really excited to follow because they have NHL prospects, they have they have a lot of talent. And you know, very early on this season, you know, Boston University was the team that everybody had kind of pegged as the one that's going to make all the noise. Well, they're playing well. They're 6-3-1. and one. They haven't played, you know, they had a kind of a rocky start to the season, but they seem to have righted the ship to a certain degree. But then you look over at Boston College, and BC has been really interesting this year. They did just have a tough weekend at Maine. Maine, uh, Maine gave them kind of all that they could handle. But, you know, I would say that this BC team has been as good or better than advertising. And part of that starts with the play that they've gotten out of a freshman goaltender and Jacob Fowler. 
And he's 7-2-1 and one with a 924 save percentage so far this season, which has been, you know, really impressive overall. I think that what, I, what I've seen from, from Jacob Fowler is, is just a continuation of what he showed last season. And I think that that was really, um, you know, one of the things that, that was going to help this team take a step is if they got the goaltending, they're getting it. They're also getting massive contributions from younger players on their roster, and that includes their first, their trio of first-round draft picks. Gabe Perot, who's now leading the team and scoring with 15 points. He's really come on in the last couple of weeks. Will Smith, who has 14 points, and Ryan Leonard, who has 10 points. You also throw in Cutter Goche, who has eight assists there. As uh, and, and I think that that's, you know, we expected those four players to be the leading scorers of this team, and sure enough, that's what they've done. But you know, you look at you look at where they go next, and I, I think defensively there's still some question marks. I think that this is a team that doesn't have a ton of experience. You know, Eamon Powell has been one of their better players on the blue line um, this year, but they haven't gotten a ton of contributions from their blue line offensively, um, which is something that you see the exact opposite of with Boston University. But Boston College, because of the goaltending and because of the the consistent scoring, that's why I think they're a team that's going to stick around for the long haul. When we go down Com Ave to Boston University, the key for them is that they have two players that can take over a game at any moment. Um, and we've seen it multiple times this season. Macklin Celebrini currently leading Boston University in points with 18. Lane Hudson from the blue line is tied with Celebrini with eight goals so far this season. And he is averaging a point, 1.22 points per game. So this is a, a pretty in, incredible output by that Boston University duo. The question has been, Will they get the goaltending? You know, Matthew Curran has has not given them tremendous goaltending this year. He's at an 898 save percentage while playing every minute so far for this team. Um, that's something that will need to be corrected. <coughs> Excuse me. And then also, I'm just going to go ahead and take a cough drop now so I can hopefully spare you guys a little bit um, from, from hearing me cough more. <laughs> Jeez. But anyway, the... You know, the getting what you're getting out of celebrating, getting what you're getting out of Hudson, you know, there has to be more. And I think they have they have talent throughout their lineup. Luke Tuck's had a really strong season. Um, you know, Jeremy Wilmer has has definitely put up some points this year. Quinn Hudson had a big game the other day. Um, you know, but this is a team that's still very young and still has a lot of guys that, you know, might get pushed around a little bit when the tougher season comes along. I think that's what made their series with North Dakota so important. They proved that they could hang with a team that's going to play physically and a team that's going to play defensively and a team that wants to get after you a little bit. And they hung in. One of the other things that's been kind of interesting following Boston University of late is that head coach Jay Pandolfo feels like Macklin Celebrini is being targeted by other teams and particularly with dangerous hits. Um, Celebrini did sit out a game last weekend, ended up playing in the second half of the series. And, you know, that, he, he he took a shot in that game too, and so Jay Pandolfo really wants to make sure that 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 that's not happening to his star player anymore. Um, and you hate to see that, but that's also something that I, I noticed even last year. You know, Macklin Celebrini is so good that teams are doing whatever they can to knock him off his game. And what I think makes him special, beyond the skill level that he has, is how little he lets that get to him. I'm sure it's annoying to be the guy that's targeted all the time, but Celebrini has definitely 
you know, not allowed that to to impact him as much as, you know, some other players we've seen do it. He, he is impossible to knock off his game. And it just speaks to the mental fortitude that he has. And now with 18 points, he's among the national scoring leaders, the top scorers in the country. There are four players with 18 points. Macklin Celebrini at 17 years old, cannot stress that enough, at 17 years old, is in just nine games, he's averaging two points per game in Division One college hockey. It's special. So don't forget about that. It is special. Also among those four players are two from the University of Denver, and that's Massimo Rizzo and Jack Devine. 18 points apiece for those two players on a team that has tremendous depth and experience, and these are two guys with that, that bring that more than anybody. Devine has 10 goals this year. Rizzo has 13 assists. That is a team that I think is absolutely a threat for the national championship. It's going to come down to them getting the the, the goaltending that, that they need because every team needs to have good goaltending, especially when it comes to the later part, part portion of the season. Um, and we saw, you know, last weekend against Arizona State, they allowed 10 goals. Um, they won, lost the game six to five in overtime, and they won a game eight to four. So goal prevention is going to be the key for them. Can they do it? Will they get enough of that? Because they clearly have the scoring talent. Because beyond Rizzo and Devine, you've got Carter King, who has 15 points. You have Boston Buckberger, a freshman defenseman with 10 points. Sean Barron's a junior defenseman with 10 points. You know, and, and freshman defenseman Zeev Booyam, who's draft eligible, has two goals and seven assists for nine points. And then they haven't really settled on a true number one goalie and a team save percentage currently of 885. That's where I get concerned about Denver's ability to contend. You know, they had Magnus Corona last year. I think they were probably hoping Matt Davis was going to take the reins this year. Hasn't necessarily happened. Freddie Hayek is, Hayek, or Halleck is also their goaltender this year. So they've got some players that definitely need to step up. <coughs> Excuse me. All right. <coughs> Man, this is not a good day for the podcast, apparently. But you guys will, as long as you will bear with me, I'll I'll keep going. Um, okay, so let's move on to, you know, Denver again. It comes down to the goaltending. Can they get that figured out? Another one of the stories that's been really exciting for me to follow this year is the resurgence of Maine. And Maine is, if you are a fan of college hockey, the University of Maine, at least a fan of college hockey of a certain age, the University of Maine probably holds a special place for you because they were, at a period of time, one of the greatest college, you know, college hockey programs in the country. And in the early 1990s, they were historically good. You think about Paul Correa, Jim Montgomery, Garth Snow, all, all these players that that became, you know, NHL players that became luminaries in the game. And they were one of the best college teams that ever existed. Well, it's been a long time since we've seen Maine get to that point. They've still produced players, but hockey's championships, NCAA tournament berths, it just has not been part of what's happened in Maine. And, you know, I think that that's starting to change. Um, and I think last weekend was a statement weekend for 
the University of Maine and their hockey program to say, we are back. And they did it with a 4-2 win over Boston College at Alphonse Arena. They did it, you know, they, they ended up tying a shootout loss in the Hockey East standings, unfortunately. But they're now 6-1-1. 6-1-1. One, and one. <coughs> six, one, and one. And remarkable in what they have done this season. And who is doing it for them? You know, that is less surprising to me because I thought that the two players that we saw play for the Penticton V's last year were going to be dominant players in college hockey, and they have been so far. And that is freshman Josh Nadeau and his brother Bradley Nadeau, who was a first-round draft pick of the Carolina Hurricanes. Bradley is leading the team. With six goals, Josh is tied for the team lead in assists with seven. And on top of that, they've gotten the goaltending that we expected them to get all season from Victor Osman. Even though he hasn't put up great numbers this year, he gives them a chance in every game. So you've got Josh Nadeau, Bradley Nadeau, a number of other players have really stepped up as well. But Maine looks like they're back, and that is great for college hockey. You have to give... A ton of credit to their staff. You know, Ben Barr moved in to Maine after winning a national championship and assistant coach at UMass and has made a significant difference there um, already. And, you know, he's still a sub 500 record as a coach, but that's going to change very quickly. And I think this season is going to have a lot to do with that. All right, after getting through Maine, we're let's talk a little bit about North Dakota. And North Dakota is an interesting program because I think they're, you know, they're obviously a proud program, great fan base, but it's been a couple of years since they've really been a competitive team and now they're kind of back to where we would expect them to be. The question is is will they be able to stay there? And the early indications are yes, they can play kind of any way you need them to, and that's been interesting to watch. So, looking at you know, the, the the season that they've had to date, they had the split with Boston University. You know, they had a, a win and a tie at Minnesota State, a split with Minnesota. You know, they played a tough schedule. Um, and then they're the only team that's beaten Wisconsin so far this season and then beat them 2 nothing. So what is happening that's gone really well for, for North Dakota? The biggest thing probably is that they've got goaltending this year. And Ludwig Persson, who came over from uh, Miami, 7-2-1. He's played every game. 9.25 save percentage. That's critical. Because I don't think that North Dakota... I thought North Dakota was going to score more goals this year than we've seen them score so far. You know, Jackson Blake is, has, has really picked up his offensive game. Um, <clears throat> um, and then Reese Gaber, you know, I think we can see more from him. I think we'll see more from um, Jaden Perron as well, who's got five goals, no assists so far this season after such a tremendous season as a playmaker last year. And so we'll see we'll see exactly where they end up. But getting the goaltending is such a huge part of what can help your team be successful. That's what they have. They have enough offense to challenge teams. They have a good decor. They have good experience throughout their lineup. So I think that, you know, North Dakota is another team that feels like it's very much back. 
And then last last couple that we're going to talk about, Providence, incredible season to start, very stingy defensively as a team. Tanner Adams has been a top freshman so far this season. That's been a very pleasant surprise for the Friars. Um, you know, they've gotten good goaltending this year as well. They're towards the top. The question is going to be, do they have enough scoring talent throughout their entire lineup to compete with some of these other teams that are going to have more skill than they do? Um, but if you can play a good defensive system, you have a really great chance to to make things happen. So that's that's another team that I, I think is very intriguing to watch going forward. A one-loss team so far this season. Um, had a lot of close games, a lot of games that went to overtime, a lot of games that went into shootouts and things like that. But I, I really think that Providence has, has got something good going this season. Lastly, I want to talk a little bit about the two teams that played for the national championship last year. I think the University of Minnesota, we knew that there was going to be a drop-off from what they had last year. Um, I think it's been a little bit more than I expected it to be at this point. Um, but you look at Quinnipiac and they're actually the top team in the pairwise right now. We don't really look at pairwise before, uh, at, before January, but you know, it's, it's with any amount of, you know, seriousness, but it is not insignificant for Quinnipiac because they played a tough schedule and they've handled themselves pretty well. And they made, you know, they made it difficult on their opponents, which is what we would expect them to do. And, you know, they're right now on a, on a five-game unbeaten streak as they head in. And, you know, they were one of the teams that lost to Maine. They lost to New Hampshire, which is another resurgent team this year. Um, but, you know, I don't think it, it's it's a tall order to repeat no matter what. I don't necessarily know if Quinnipiac has the the goods to be a team that competes and 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 contends for the title again this year. But they're starting to get some really good positive things going for their team. They've got depth of, of scoring. They've got guys that are going at a high level. Colin Graff has only played in six games so far this year, but is averaging two points per game. Jacob Quillen, hero of the national championship game, 15 points already this season to lead them. Um, and then Sam Lipkin, who was such an important sophomore um, this year, was a freshman last year on the national championship team, 10 points so far in 11 games. So they're getting a lot of contributions from throughout their lineup. A couple other freshmen have really stepped up, and on Serbone, uh, Mason Marcellus, two guys that were really good in the uh, USHL playoffs last year, um, are, are making a pretty big impact. So, so good to see there. But the thing that I that I, I look at most about this collegiate season is, you know, there's such parity. Anybody that has their best can win on any night, um, and that's makes for drama. It makes for a lot of fun. It makes for a lot of uncertainty. Um, you know, I look at the CCHA right now, which you can watch uh, on Flow Hockey, and there are a lot of teams that we're still trying to learn about. Um, there are a lot of teams there that, like that, that conference for the first time in ages feels wide open. Um, and there are, you know, you think that any team in that league at this stage of the season still has a chance to finish first in the conference. Um, you know, the, I think that we're starting to see RIT pull away in Atlantic hockey. I think Hockey East is going to be an absolute battle the whole way. Big Ten is going to be a battle. Um, there's so much to look forward to in the rest of this college hockey season. So, you know, we don't learn a mu as much in October. And even though we're still just very in the early stages of November, I think we've seen enough games where we can have an idea of what teams are. And I just don't see anybody really pulling away and standing heads above anybody else for this season. And I think that's a great thing for college hockey. It's great for the drama of the sport. <coughs> All right. 
now we move into our discussion about the international break. Um, the There are a lot of different breaks throughout the season for international hockey. This early one, usually smaller tournaments with the exception of the World Under-17 Challenge, which is a big one. Um, you know, five nations, four nations, different things like that. And it's a great opportunity for teams to kind of gauge themselves as we head into World Junior season, as we head into the, you know, the remainder of the Under-18 season. Um, but we're going to start with the Under-17 Challenge because I think it's a, a fascinating tournament. Um, it's always played in Canada. Canada always has multiple teams. They have two teams now. They used to have teams by region back in the day. Um, so they would have a lot of teams. But it's kind of like a mini World Juniors, the way that the tournament is set up. The U.S. ended up going to the championship game. They lost to Canada White in overtime in a just a, a thrilling final. On um, this uh, this uh, this tournament was, you know, it, it always has great performances. Um, you know, the, the leading scorer of the tournament was Will Moore, who kind of had his breakout. We've been waiting to see, you know, is he going to really pop off? He was very highly touted coming in the national team development program. He finishes the tournament with twelve points, so big breakout there. Charlie Trethaway, a Boston University commit, had 10 points to lead all defensemen uh, and also scored a late game-tying goal in the gold medal game. Um, so he had a great one. Emil Gite uh, was the top scorer for uh, Canada White, playing for the Shawinigan Cataracts. Uh, just an out, outstanding uh, tournament, 10 points for him, um, and they get the win. So you know that under seventeen tournament is always uh, a, a really unique measuring stick. But one thing that I wanted to point out: so Will Smith or Will Moore rather led the tournament in scoring this year with twelve points. James Higgins in that very same tournament had twenty one points last year, which just goes to show you how impressive a tournament uh, Higgins had last year. And and then he continued that because we're also going to talk about the under eighteen Five Nations that was played out in uh, Finland, I believe. So. <laughs> It's all running together now, um, but James Higgins had 11 points at the at the most recent uh, Five Nations, and um, Team USA ended up winning the tournament. Um, they got a little bit of help from from Finland in that one, but he he scored a lot. And then um, you know having 11 points there, and then and, and Cole Eiserman now up to 21 goals on the season after scoring three goals over his last two games at that tournament. Um, after not scoring in the first two games, which is a bit of a surprise for him, sure, certainly shot the puck enough, but didn't get him to drop. And then another name to know from that tournament, Alexander Zetterberg had eight points for Sweden. Sweden did beat the U.S. early in the tournament um, in overtime. It was a mega collapse by the U.S. and certainly a wake-up call for them as they prepare for their entire season, resting on the world under seven or the world under 18s later in the spring. But Alexander Zetterberg, eight points for Sweden. A very intriguing prospect, not a big guy, um, but certainly highly skilled and entertaining to watch. All right. Well, we got through that. Let's talk questions. Let's turn it over to you, the listeners. Lots of questions uh, to get to, and I will answer them quickly so that I will stop coughing on you and you guys can go about your merry day. Uh, But our first one comes from Kevin, and Kevin asks, Chris, I know you love the World Junior question, so I'll ask another one. Do you think Cruz Lucius or Gavin Hayes could potentially make the forward group for the U.S.? I know politics are always involved when it comes to picking kids from the CHL, but curious to see if there is a fit for him. Well, I had Gavin Hayes on my roster coming out of the summer camp. I don't think there's really been anything to dissuade me from that. However, you mentioned Cruz Lucius, and, and Lucius is actually having a tremendous season. Um, 
and you know, four four of the top team in the country. So he's had a had a breakout year. But I, I have a hard time seeing with the way that Gavin Hayes played in the camp and the way that he's playing right now for the Flint Firebirds in the OHL. I do not think that he will be left off the roster. I also think that the the CHL politics has been a bit overblown. The the crazy thing about that is though, uh, Brad Schlossman recently just wrote a, an article for the Grand Forks Herald about you know the sheer number of of American talent being in the CHL anymore continues to dwindle. Um, and so there are fewer guys like Gavin Hayes that are kind of faced with that predicament. And I don't think that that you, it makes it a little harder to watch those guys when it's just one or two of those guys. But I think that Gavin Hayes put himself on the map with his, his summer camp. Cruz Lucius had an okay summer camp. You know, he, he didn't necessarily stand out there. I did not have him on my projected roster. But you look at the way that he's played for Wisconsin so far. You look at the numbers that he's put up. You look at the familiarity that they have with him from um, from him being at the national team development program. Um, he's intriguing all of a sudden again. You know, he's got nine points in ten games so far for Wisconsin. Um, he is a goal scorer. He's a guy that can play with a little bit of heaviness as well. I think he's you know tacked on some weight, and that's made him tougher to play against. And so. Um, you look at a guy like him and maybe you put him in a depth role and he'll still thrive. I think it's, you know, for a guy like Cruz, I think ideally you want him in your middle six and that's where I have a, a harder time placing him in the roster. Um, so I think both those players are absolutely options for the team. I don't necessarily know if either will, will or, you know, if they'll make the final roster, but I do think that Hayes probably has a bit of a leg up just because he can play in a lot of different situations. He even got some power play time. Um, in camp. So very intriguing to watch that. Next one comes to us from Gabe and Gabe asks, what do you make of Cole Iserman in the long term? Is he bound to be the star we all think or do positional woes and a coupling with elite centermen create pause? You know, that's a, that's a, that's an interesting question. Uh, and, you know, I think certainly posing it that way, um, with the idea of, Hey, yeah, he plays with a really good center. He plays, you know, he's, he's not always played with, uh, Hagen's. They they've been separated at various times as well. But the thing about Eiserman in the long term that I think is going to be critical for both him. And then, you know, for those of us that are evaluating him is, you know, how many dimensions are there in his game? Is he just a goal scorer? And I think if you're just a goal scorer, you have to be elite at that, which he is. Um, but you have to be, you know, truly special at it. Um, the other thing is, you know, playing a more defensive style or not style, but just being more defensive minded, being better off the puck, being a more well-rounded player would allow him to have a more comfortable projection. So when I look at Iserman and Celebrini, who are two of the top guys that we've talked about all season, for the draft, I say, well, Celebrini to me is the much more complete player, which is a separating factor for me. <clears throat> However, Cole Eiserman's best trait is the trait, one of the things that really helps you win at the next level. Being a, a great goal scorer is not an easy thing to accomplish. And, you know, I think that he will, you know, continue to be a player of intrigue throughout the season because of 
that elite trait that he has. We also have to remember, I mean, he's he's scoring at a pace that's close to 80 to, to potentially score more than 80 goals this season, which means that it's a, you know, we, we just haven't seen that, uh, you know, 80 goals. It's never happened at the national team program. Um, even if he scores more than the, the 72 Cole Caulfield scored, I mean, that's how rare it is, is that Caulfield went, you know, the, the, the record was 55 goals and then Caulfield scored 72. So he destroyed it. And Iserman is on the pace to, to get even further past that. So, I I do think that positional situation like he is he is a wing he does not have the defensive value to be a center um, he doesn't necessarily drive play like a center does he's a finisher and I think that if you're an elite finisher you could still be a top tier pick and I think he will be a top tier pick um, the question I have is how much value will he create in his game away from goal scoring um, and that will ultimately determine his long term projection. All right, our next one comes from Alex, and this is more of a procedural question, but a good one nonetheless. Um, so this one is the question for the podcast. Can you explain the relationship between the USHL and the NAHL? Thought they were entirely separate, but saw there was a trade between Dubuque and Maine, and the term sent down was used in the, in the uh, Christopher Pelosi article. NAHL, a farm league at all? Thanks. All right, Alex. Well, thanks for the question. Um, Technically, no. The North American League is not a farm league for the USHL. It is the tier two, only tier two uh, league in the United States. Um, So tier one is USHL. Tier two is NAHL. Um, What happens in in, in the situation like a Chris Pelosi situation, um, teams – NHL teams can loan players um, or USHL teams can get players for a certain amount of time. There's an agreement. Um, if a player is to stay, like if Chris Pelosi, like he did last year, stays with um, the USHL team, I do believe there's some sort of compensation, whether it's like a future considerations thing or it's a player off your affiliate list, something like that. Um, I'm not entirely sure how that works, but there are trades between leagues, um, you know, in order to acquire players. And, you know, we saw uh, Adam Guyon last year played enough games, you know, a few games with with Green Bay um, and, and then stayed with the Chippewa Steel for the remainder of his season in the North American League. So, uh, but but just to clearly state it, it's not a farm system. Um, players can move between the leagues. There can be agreements between teams to have, you know, this player's on our affiliate list. We'd like to have them for this weekend. You know, can we work something out where he can come play for us? And I think a lot of North American League teams are happy to, you know, they're not happy to lose their player, but they are happy to allow their players to advance um, and get opportunities um, and then, you know, potentially come back. But uh, it's not really a formal farm system kind of situation. I think North American League people would probably bristle at even the mention of that. But um, I think it's something that, you know, I can understand the confusion, but. Uh, but yeah, but ultimately, um, you know, there's there's not that formal of a of a farm kind of scenario. All right, our next question comes from MVP. It's been a while since he asked a question. Glad to have one on the pod. CP, my Red Wings have the way too many pros- have way too many prospects that are on the cusp of breaking through. Yet we have zero players that are rookies or sophomores. Do you see the Wings flipping them for immediate help or playing a lot of rookies next season? 
yeah, it is an interesting position that the Red Wings have found themselves in in the last couple of years because they have a really good system or had you know have a number of players that are are pretty critical to them um, getting through. But I would say that the you know where they're at in their rebuild process is still building a little bit more. Like you know they've got a lot of good players. They've they've taken a step as a, as an organization. That's clear. But where do they go from here? And the thing about that is, is like, you know, according to Pete, there's a lot of players that are kind of on the cusp. And maybe there are, but, you know, I think you look, we're still waiting to see Simon Edmondson take the step. You know, we're still waiting to see even Uniton Bergeron. Can he take a permanent step? You know, those those kinds of players um, that you're looking to get in there. I think that in general we don't see teams trade prospects for more immediate help and have success with that. Um, I think if you are the Detroit Red Wings, you still have to be keeping one eye on the future. And sometimes that means a gradual process in terms of when you're bringing guys in. Um, You know, I think that they have a lot of kind of B level prospects in addition to the, some of the a level guys that they do have, but I, I just think it's very difficult to win trades that help you enough with prospects um, because if those players go on and have great success elsewhere, you're kind of stuck holding the bag. Um, but I do think that the Red Wings are going to have to kind of stagger how they get players in. Like, I don't think you want next season Nate Danielson to immediately be in there, Simon Edmondson to be in there. Um, you know, uh, Carter Mazur to be like all these guys that are first year players. It doesn't really, again, doesn't help you with where you're kind of going. So finding a way to stagger those players rather than trade them is probably the better thing. Or if you feel strongly enough about how a player could help you and does one of our second tier prospects allow us to make that move, then I do think you kind of explore that. But I don't think you do it with some of the guys that are our top tier guys, like the guys like Edmondson and, 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 you know, maybe not even like a guy like Mazer, who's kind of like in that next level um, that doesn't necessarily have the same pedigree. So interesting enough, but a good question. And I think that the Red Wings are a very fascinating franchise to watch going forward here. All right. We're getting back into college hockey slash world junior a little bit. And this one comes from agent Smith and agent Smith asks, Comments on Perot's BC start. All right, so we are definitely talking about Gabe Perot, and Gabe has had a very good start to the season. Um, and not only has he had a good start to the season, it's kind of taken a little bit. So, like, he didn't blow the doors off of anybody. Took him a little while to get going, but now he has multiple points in one, two, three, four, five, six games so far. Of the 10 that he's played in this season, has been held off the score sheet just his first two games in a BC uniform and otherwise has been fine. A lot of uh, a lot of primary points there. He had a nice goal against Maine this weekend. Gabe Perot is one of those players where, you know, he does not have the physical tools of a top-tier prospect in terms of, you know, height, weight, different things like that, you know, skating ability. But he has such an incredible mind for the game. His hockey sense is is spectacular. His ability to make plays, his ability to read plays, 
And now that he's gotten that little, you know, had a bit of a slow start, but now he's come back on, and this has been a much better um, kind of stretch of games here where he's had, you know, multiple points against Maine, multiple points against UMass Lowell, multiple points against Michigan State. He's kind of gotten on a roll. And when Gabe Perot has gotten on a roll in the past, it just seems to snowball the points. And there's a lot of games that you watch him and you don't even notice what he – you're like, I didn't notice him that much. But then you look at the score sheet and he has three points. That happens all the time, and that's what makes him a fascinating prospect. And now the leading scorer for one of the top-tier teams in the country. So uh, we actually had three questions about Gabe Perot. I chose one of them because they all just said, how's he doing? He's doing fine. Um, and I think that he's a player that more than likely is a two to three year college player. So just keep that in mind as well. He's not the kind of player that I think has that physical capability to to hop into the NHL, but I think he thinks the game at an exceptional level. And I'm really excited to see what happens next. All right, our next one comes from Half Wall Hockey, and it's also about a BC player. And this is about Will Smith. Your best evaluation of Will Smith's start would be awesome. Sounds like it'll be a BC-centric episode, given someone else has a Perot question. And we ended up having three Perot questions. So, all right. Will Smith, not a lot more that I can say that I haven't already said. I think he is a magician. Uh, I think he thinks the game at an exceptional level. I think he makes a ton of plays, and he is second in scoring on the BC scoring list right now. Um. And he's one of the top top freshmen. I think he's going to play a significant role for Team USA at the World Juniors. Um, I do think that you know Gabe Perot has put himself back on the map for that team as well. Um, but Will Smith, to me, is a driver. He's a driver. He makes plays. He makes things happen. He is confident with the puck. He can beat defenders one-on-one. Everything we saw from him last year, he has made that transition into college hockey. He's doing it this year. Maybe he's not scoring as many points, but last year was just insane how many points they had. I I think that the best is yet to come with Will Smith, and I really, really like how he has played throughout the start of this season, and especially with the, the way that he has scored to start the year. All right. Next one comes from Anthony, and he asks for my thoughts on Isaac Howard's season compared to last year. So Isaac Howard had a really tough year last year at Minnesota Duluth. And we knew that it was, you know, maybe not going to be the best fit in the end pretty early last season. So how is he fitting in at Michigan State? Well, he already has 15 points. He's tied for the team lead in scoring. He has been held off the score sheet in one game so far this season, one game. Um, And then otherwise has had, um, Four goals and 11 assists. So he is now two points away from from tying his point total in 35 games last year, and he has played in 12 this year. So I would say it's going well. Why is it going well? I think that there's you know opportunity for one. The quality of the team has also helped quite a bit. Familiarity with the coaching staff. Going to play for Adam Nightingale again, who he played for at the National Team Development Program. That's a coach that knows the full complement of Isaac Howard's skill set. It's also a coach that has had to hold Isaac Howard accountable in his game. And I think we've seen that. And Isaac Howard now 15 points looking very strong 
and also an option for the World Junior Team. All right, our next question comes from Avco Cup, and Avco asks, with players like Byfield, Perfetti, and Rossi beginning to make real impacts in the NHL, am I wrong in thinking the 2020 draft might turn out better than originally expected? Well then, a very... uh, I'm glad you asked this question because I think it it brings up a very important point. And it's that NHL draft classes are going to ebb and flow in terms of what we think of them, I feel like. And a lot of it is tied to how the best players or the highest picks in that class are classified. And so for for this, Alexi Lafreniere obviously had not had a great start. He's having a pretty good season now. You know, Byfield is having he's a top line player for for um for the LA Kings. Tim Stutzla, superstar player already in the NHL and I'm, you know, thrilled to continue to watch him play. Lucas Raymond, very strong player. Jake Sanderson is on the cusp. I mean, this is a very good draft class. It was a good draft class when we, when we profiled them. You know, I think the other thing that we have to remember about the 2020 draft class in particular is think about their draft year. What happened? What happened to all of us? COVID. So they lose the rest of that draft season. The next NHL season starts late. Many of these players go back to where they were playing before. Byfield had to go straight to the AHL because there was no OHL season. Uh, Lafreniere went to the NHL. Stutzla went to the NHL. You know, Jake Sanderson went back to college. Lucas Raymond went to the NHL. So these guys were getting kind of off a weird start, off to a weird start, where they had this delayed NHL season. They had to, you know, prepare in a pandemic as well. So I think that this class probably always was going to be a slow burn in terms of what we think of it in total. But I think as more players reach the NHL, and I think a lot of them already have and will continue to, I do think that 2020 class is going to be looking a lot better. I I mean, just with Stutzla and Sanderson alone, we're talking about a number one center, a number one defenseman. Those are critical pieces. Tim Stutzla is going to be a superstar in this league. And I think a lot of these guys, you know, whether it's injury or whatever, haven't necessarily gotten to the right start. I think there's still plenty of time for them to really pop off and, and for us to, to view that 2020 class a lot more favorably. And again, we're really only three, you know, four years out from that class and here they are. So pretty good. All right. Our next question comes from my broadcast partner, David Fine, who is the broadcast for the Iowa, Iowa Heartlanders. And he, he asked, if you had to pick any type of breakfast food in the world before a morning ECHL game, what would it be and why? Well, it depends on where you're at in the world. Like if you're in Canada, maybe you'd have a beaver tail before that with a coffee. Maybe you'd get a Timbit or something or, or, or a Tim Hortons coffee. I'm not sure. If you're in the Midwest, you probably have breakfast pizza because that's what we do here. We have gas station breakfast pizza, and that's what you should do. Somebody had already chimed in. They already answered for me. Uh, but if you are doing a broadcast as David was, or if you're trying to do a podcast and you don't want to cough all the time like I am, don't eat anything flaky because that will uh, not help you. But one thing, I, the reason that I put this question on the podcast isn't because I wanted to give David my breakfast advice. It's because I just came from a school day game in the ECHL. And if you're not familiar with school day games, basically a bunch of local schools get ever get get a field trip together 
And the the ECHL teams, they do this in the USHL, AHL, they do it all over in, in Canada as well. They will play a game at 10.30 in the morning, and it is wall-to-wall kids. And if you were a child who was allowed out of school to watch a professional hockey game, how many decibels do you think your voice would go if you had – well, I experienced that today. My ears are still ringing. I am still trying to wrap my head around what I saw, but it is one of the great ways that minor league hockey, junior hockey is growing the game of hockey because a lot of those kids may have never attended a hockey game in their lives before or say, or, or, or maybe some of them won't again, but it's an opportunity for them to experience something they've never seen before. There's a lot of educational stuff over the course of the game. They had some Bill Nye, the science guy up on the screen and, they also – it allows students to see what their community is like. These teams become such a part of the community that it is among the many important things that, that they do and, uh, and and that you can experience in your community. And that's what I think is the value of, of those trips. And also, I mean, if you're a kid, how could you not love a hockey field trip? My son was at the game today, so I had to go. I, well, I didn't have to go. I wanted to go. Uh, to watch that and it is such a great experience and if you ever get the chance um, just make sure you bring earplugs with you because uh, the second baby shark or spongebob hits you are toast so uh, and then our final question of the day comes from uh, my good pal Matty Mo. he asks <laughs> can you take me higher I don't know if you guys have seen this meme yet of the guy who starts singing creeds higher because this this other guy takes a uh, a piece of frozen water out of out of some bucket that it froze into and and shatters it. Uh, but go watch it. And if you haven't seen it yet, Quinnipiac's hockey team actually just remixed it. And I now have that song stuck in my head. So, Maddie, the answer is yes, I can take you higher uh, to the place where blind men see. Uh, and that's where we will end that up. Uh, Maddie Mo, former guest of the podcast as well. Always happy to, to hear from my pal Maddie. But Next week's a big one. 100th episode is coming up. It's also big because we will be talking wall-to-wall NHL draft. I will have my first draft rankings of the season out next week. We will discuss it here. I'll have you read them. Then you can ask me questions about it. You can yell at me. You can tell me I'm wrong. You can do all those things. As long as you do it politely, I'll probably talk about it on the podcast. Thank you for bearing with me through my uh, little cold-induced coughing fit here. Uh, hopefully, you guys were able to still enjoy the podcast. I certainly enjoyed uh, speaking with you. It's always fun to get together. Next week, 100th episode. Make sure you are subscribed up. Watch us on YouTube. Watch us on Flow Hockey or the Flow Sports app. And we will get after it once again next week, hopefully with a little bit of a clearer uh, throat and mind and body and spirit as we get into the 2024 NHL draft rankings. That's going to do it for this weekend's epi- this week's episode of Talking Hockey Sense. I'm Chris Peters. We'll catch you next time.